New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mendrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mendrinos. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Comedy Legacy Series. I'm your host, Jim Mendrinos. We are brought to you by the fine folks at New Media Comedy Worldwide. Uh, we have got a phenomenal guest. He is an author. Uh, he is a comedian. Uh, he is an actor, and he's been my friend for well over 30 years, and you're going to learn so much. Uh, so sit back and give a listen and help me welcome Mr. Al Romero. All right, this one's going to be fun for me because this is my old writing partner. We, uh, we have not physically, I think this is the first time we've physically seen each other's faces in over I 20 know. years. I know, Matt, I know. Uh, uh, Mr. Al Romero. Uh, Al, thank you so much for, for coming on the Comedy Legacy Podcast. This is, this is going to be a trip down memory lane for me. I know that. I know. So, well, thank you for having me, man. I'm so glad to see you again, man. I mean, so glad to uh, make contact again, you know? Yeah. It's uh, we we need to do it when there's not a pandemic and we could actually be in a room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah. Well, at the, the age of one of us had it, we'd kill the other one. I know. It only took a worldwide pandemic for us to get together again. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we have been in contact because uh, I, and I gotta I gotta point this out. You are a published author with a book. Yeah. And yeah. Then, Will you know, believe that? <laughs> I know. Man, I, I, I remember when we first started writing, I had no fucking clue whatsoever. I remember you holding me by the hand, you know? You know all I had was ideas and stories, you know? And we, I, I try to relate it to you and, 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 and you put it, you know, into, uh, into dialogue and into uh, prose. And, and then I would say, no, that's not what I want. You know, we had these discussions back and forth, you know? Uh, but uh, it, it was great, man. It was great. It was my first... It was my trip into writing for the first time, you know? Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, your trip into writing, because that's essentially your life story. Your family lived in Cuba, and you came here, and the title of your book is, so everyone can go buy it? Re Revolution. Uh, yeah. Our screenplay was Revolutions with an S. I yeah. took the S out. He took the S out. Right. That was his way of cutting me out. You know, take the S out. <laughs> Yeah, Get rid of Pedritos yeah. and we're good. Yeah, well, the S for the for the Greek, you know, how Greeks everything with an S. Yeah, you just took yeah, that well, out. I took the, exactly, I took the Greek part of it out. Um, and this is essentially your life story about how your family wound up escaping from Cuba. There's a lot of fictionalized parts to it as well, you know. Yes, yes, but, it is. But, but again, you, you're basing it on your story, and that's what we started. Well, I, right I don't call it a base; I call it uh, inspired. Okay, inspired. Yeah. Yeah, right. because base will be more more in line with what happened to my family. Inspire means that I got the idea to do the 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 story, but it's not necessarily about my family. Although my there's a lot of stories there that are my. If you remember, oh. there's a lot of stuff that actually oh. did happen to me. So family. much about your uncle ha is in there. I remember. Yeah, right. I remember it well. Right. So yeah. um, let's talk a little bit about this because. You've dabbled in screenwriting. You've dabbled in, you know, now novel writing. But your basis has been being a stand-up for, I believe you're a stand-up now for 109 years. You started in uh, 1922. I, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Actually, I was performing on the Pinta uh, when, we, when Columbus came over. <laughs> I was the opening act. <laughs> you were the opening act. <laughs> but, no, I, I, 40 years now, man. 40 years. Wow. And yeah. you got on television really quick, didn't you? Yeah, man. I mean, I went from zero to 60, like, 
like like this and then hit a plateau, you know? Well, you, I, know. you know what happened? I, I the, 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 Hollywood was not ready for 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 the type of, of Hispanic that I presented myself as. You know, back in the 80s, you know, if you weren't a, a drug dealer or a waiter or something like that, you, there were no parts whatsoever, you know? Mm -hmm. The same thing with women. You had to be a, you know, a, a maid or a prostitute or something like that. And uh, I used to get this uh, left-handed compliments. Well, Al, you see, the problem with you is that you're educated and, and you have an air of success about you. And, and wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean to tell me Hispanic people cannot be educated? Oh, no, don't take it that way. Don't take it that way. How the fuck am I supposed to take it? By the way, can I curse? Can yeah, I curse? you can curse all you want. Okay. How the hell am I supposed to take it? You know? Yeah. So, yeah. So they, there was no... You know, in order to go to the next level, you know, you had to get on TV or movies and stuff like that. And, and there was never a part for me. I was competing with guys like Paul Rodriguez, who did, uh, you know, more of a, you know, barrio type Hispanic. And that's not the way I've ever presented myself because that's not me, you know. Yeah. Um, so there wasn't. Yeah. yeah so the, there was a little budget. But what was your first TV spot? Uh, Murph Griffin. All right. Murph Griffin it show. Yeah. And do, and do you remember prepping for that spot? Do you remember what you had to do in order to get it? Well, I I, I knew a guy named Lonnie Shore. You remember Lonnie Shore, the yeah. comedian? Yeah. Okay, well, he we became friends. He used to come see me at the clubs in Florida. And he told me, you know, you know, I'm very good friend with Merck Griffin. When you're ready, uh, you know, I think I can get you an audition. Well, <laughs> you know, like a year into it, I said, I'm ready. He looked at me like a seven head. I said, I'm going to California. So, you know, I would like to. He said, well, I don't think you should do it. But if you want to, I'll get you the audition. He did. And I, I got on. It was a magical night, man. I got on. Uh, the owners of the comic strip got me uh, on the at the comedy store. And the people from the Murph Griffin show came to see me at the comedy store. And I had to follow Steve Martin, you know. And uh, you, you, you ever met Argus Hamilton? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, Ar Argus didn't know me from Adam, uh, but he was very nice, man. He saw the, the, the fear in my eyes when he told me, he came up to me and says, man, we're going to have to bump you. Uh, we're going to put Steve Martin on. I go, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I can't follow Steve Martin. What are you talking about? But he did something very classy. He went on stage after Steve Martin got three standing ovations and got off the stage. And he said, you know, uh, you know uh, Steve Martin was not always Steve Martin. He started in clubs like this. And I want you to, the next guy that's coming up, I want you to be, you know, to give him the same love and consideration. You leave Steve Martin because you never know this guy might be the next Steve Martin. And they were, they gave me all the love, man. And I killed. And uh, Mitzi, you know, I got the Murph Griffin show. Mitzi came down from her perch, which is almost unheard of. Yeah. And, and told me that I had to move. You have to move here. You have to move here. And I go, well, I don't have any plans. Well, you got the Murph Griffin show. I heard it from her. She's the one that told me that I got the Murphy show before the producer told me. You have to move here. You have to move there. So I did, you know. Uh, I left everything, and I moved to California. I've been doing comedy for one year. Wow. You know, it was unheard of. And I got managers and agent. You know what my first big gig was after that? What? I opened for Ray Charles. <laughs> That's I a fun had, gig. I know. I had 20 minutes of material, 15 of them about South Florida. And I'm opening for Ray Charles in Chicago. <laughs> I pulled it off. Don't tell me how, but I pulled it off, you know. 
Well, that's the one thing about us as comics. We wind up surviving because there have been plenty of gigs I've done some with you that I had no earthly reason to be doing back then because you met me when I was doing comedy about, I want to say we met in, you moved back to New York in 86, 85? No, no, I moved to New York in 85. 85, yeah. 85, yeah. So, yeah, yeah so I've been doing it. But we have met previously. We have met before. <laughs> oh, yeah, we, we met, met in Florida before. At the comic strip, correct. Yeah. yeah right. um, but the first time we started hanging out was up in New York, and we did some right. ungodly one-nighters together. <laughs> yeah, the Palazzos. The Palazzo gigs, remember those? Oh, yeah. I, I oh, so man. remember them. $65 and, and anything from the left <laughs> side of the menu. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which nobody wanted to eat anything on the left side no, of the menu. No, <laughs> nobody did. And, and there would be out, we would be stuffing our face with burgers and and chicken strips, and there would be Al, like, ordering, like, I just want two grilled chicken breasts. <laughs> yes. Nothing on yeah. them. I know, I know. You were that trying was my to live forever experience. back then. I know, I know. See, I'm still hanging on. You're hanging on, but here's all I'm going to tell you. Now it's COVID. Now there's nothing to really live for. You should have had the cheeseburger. I know. <laughs> yeah, well, now I am. Now I'm stuffing my face with all the crap I can get, I get my hands on. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Yeah. So, so let, let's talk a little bit about that because as comics, I don't think people realize you could be opening for Ray Charles in a 5,000 seat theater on a Monday night and Tuesday night you're doing a freaking Palazzo's gig at a bar. You know, what's it like to, to have to constantly change gigs from performance venue to performance venue? Well, because it was so early in my career that I was doing that, I, you know, I, I didn't know any better. You know, uh, mm -hmm. I was like, uh, like deers in the, you know, deer in the headlights, uh, doing those shows. I, I didn't even know how to pull that off. I, I felt more comfortable doing the Balazzo gigs that I did actually opening for Ray Charles because the Balazzo gig, you know, who cares? You know what I'm saying? It's a bunch of drunks. Uh, and it was, you know, this is one thing that I try to tell young comedians all the time. When you first start, when you first start, you should, you should go on stage anywhere. And bombing is almost as important as doing good because bombing gives you that thick, th thick skin and also, you know, gets you to the point that you don't care anymore. And when you, when you're, when you don't care anymore, when you don't care uh, how bad you're going to do, you're just there to perform and hone your act, that, that actually, you know, propels you into the next stage. At least it did for me where, you know, when I stopped caring about, Oh God, I have to do, I have to do, I used to go there and do my act. You know, if they like it, they like it. If they didn't like it, they didn't like it. You know, yeah. I, I've never written, I never written comedy for them. I always written comedy for me. Let them decide whether they like it or not. Then I keep it in the act. Now, oddly, this was the conversation that made us write together. Because uh, we we had done a gig together, and afterwards you'd come to me and went, "You're a good writer, you know." And you were you were talking to me a little That's bit. Not, oh. I know exactly, Jim, because they are exactly like it was yesterday. We were coming back from a Palazzo gig, and uh -huh. I was driving. I was driving. And I said, I was telling you the story of my family. Yeah. And you said, "Oh, well, that's a great story." I said, "I want to write a book," and you said. Uh, I think it would make. I think it would even be better if you write it as a screenplay. And I said, yeah. "Well, let's do it." And then we started. We started writing it as a screenplay. You know. Yeah. And, yeah, and that's what happened. In that same conversation, we were talking about writing for the audience, and we both shared that this is for us. It's not for the audience. I do right. comedy for me, and I write exactly. the stuff that I think is funny. 
and hopefully they're like-minded. Exactly. And what stays in the act is what they like, you know? But I, yeah. I never wrote a joke thinking, oh, they, they, they're going to think it's funny. No, I write a joke because I think it's funny. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about your, your, uh, your writing style because uh, I've, I've written stand-up with you on occasion. Remember me, you, Carl Guerra, we used to meet at the strip and do those little writing sessions? Yes, yes, yes. But I was never good. I'm never was good at writing, man. I'm never good at writing comedy, uh, stand-up. Uh, stand-up, uh, I've always... I, I, I have to experience the situation. Like, for example, if I have a joke about a Jehovah Witness that I have in my act, it's because Jehovah Witness came to my house, knocked on the door, and I started thinking of all these preposterous things that I could do because of the situation. But I've never been very good at putting, you know, writing a getting a piece of paper and writing down jokes. I'm never very good at that. You you are. I envy you for that because you are you're able to do that. I've never been very good at that. Well, but you still churn out an enormous amount of material, even though you develop yeah. most of it on stage. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well I what I this is the way I write. I I have a premise in my head that I think is funny. Mm-hmm. I bring it on stage and I work it out on stage and it works itself into a joke. That's yeah. the way I write. And yeah. that's, there's a lot of great writers who write in the same way. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I met all the comedians that write that way too. I, I keep telling the younger comics when I meet them, there's no one way to do this, but there is a right way to do this. And the right way is to actually do the work. If you know you write on stage, then get on stage enough to write a lot of material, which exactly. you always did. I, right. um, <clears throat> I remember in the 80s when you were living in New York City and you had the place on 86th, if I remember. It was on 86th Street. 80, right, 86th, yeah. 2nd and 3rd, yeah. Uh, it was, with a balcony and a small dog and a beautiful young wife. Uh, yes. And uh, you had no godly reason to have to go out you know, five, six, seven nights a week. You were making enough money, you know, you had the Pocados gigs and whatnot. So you could have easily turned down a lot of the shittier gigs, but you want and use them like developmental gigs. You use them to, you know. I, I perform anywhere. I, you give me a stage, I went on. And I tell young comedians, the only one way to get good is stage time, stage time, stage time, you know? Yeah. And that's what I did. I got on, I, I did every, every Balazzo gig, every every shitty gig that I could get my, my, my ass on stage. And I did it, you know? Yeah. Uh, you also uh, have mastered the art of making fun of comics when uh, <laughs> the games don't go quite as well. Uh, uh, if you remember just uh, giving me an epic amount of shit, because <laughs> back, uh, and, and people won't remember this, but you, but you will. South Florida used to have a lot of varied types of gigs. Yes. You, could work, you could work regular comedy clubs like the Comic Strip or, you know, Boganuts or whatever else was around at the time. Um, you could work the senior circuit, which was, you know, four o'clock dinner shows for people who were 109 years old. Uh, yeah, and then there, then there were the late night shows at places like Solid Gold and the strip clubs that we would do. Yeah. Oh, God. I remember those. Yeah. <laughs> and I had Take it a- off. Take it off. <laughs> I had a week where uh, I was working down in Florida and you were up in New York and I was doing the strip for the regular shows. And then I had the two weeks booked at solid gold. Cause if you remember, they used to book you for two straight weeks in, in Florida. Yeah. Um, and the whole two weeks I was doing solid gold, which were, I got more for one show at solid gold than I got for the two weeks of Milazzo skins. I know exactly. But I was, I was calling you up afterwards going, 
they hate me. And they're like, there's tits. They don't even know you're there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they don't care. They don't give a shit. You know, they, you were there just so the girls can change costumes. That's basically what it was. And give them a breather, you know? Yep. Uh, but that was I, it. What I loved about that was I had never done those shows before. And you had. And when I was getting on the plane to go down to Florida, you were there like, call me Tuesday after your first show. Because <laughs> you kind of <laughs> knew what was going to happen. <laughs> Exactly. I want. I want. I wanted to be there to enjoy your misery. <laughs> <laughs> but you also gave me a lot of great advice. You told me to slow down. You told me to just stick to your material. Don't don't engage with the hecklers. Don't you know? Nah, don't let you them can. win. Yeah, you know. You just ignore ignore them. You know. So I I want to because you obviously knew all that and clearly it's because you worked the same shitty gigs as I did. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, our, our friendship, our friendship was bound by shit gigs. Yeah, yeah. We didn't really do the good ones together. In fact, when we did the Borgata together, that's when you left New York. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I had a car. I had a car, and we we booked. You know, Balazos. You know, knew both of us, and he he would book people that didn't have a car with people that had a car. Yeah. So we. That's why we did a lot of shows together. You know. Yeah, I was I was the only feature being driven around by the headliner for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah, but it was true. I mean, everyone else was I the know. feature that was driving. You were just catching up to drive me. The feature um, or the opening act. Oh yeah. Or, or uh, what was the name of the guy that worked for him? Danny, Danny Rosenthal. Remember Danny? He did yes. the improv on occasion. Yes. Yes. Oh yeah. I remember that. I remember. Hey. Chris Rock, yeah. when he first started, used to drive us around. Remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Chris Rock used to pick me up at, the, at my front door and drop me off at the front door when he first started doing comedy. And yep. now he's a huge star. <laughs> and he has no idea where your front door is anymore. <laughs> no, he doesn't care either. No, not at all. But he's been very nice to uh, Joe Vega, though. Yeah, he has. He's been very yeah. nice to a lot of people. You know, yeah, he has. He's mentioned me like 10 or 12 times on the Stern Show. And I can always tell because, you know, I'll get like 30 That's emails nice. from people going, Chris Rock said something about you. And I'm That's there like, nice. That's yeah. nice. But, I, but I'm not on the show. Right? I, mean, I was on the show. <laughs> yeah. Invite me in, mother. <laughs> Put me in a movie, God damn it. Exactly. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the, the acting side of it. Because you've done a bunch of acting. I remember you went to Africa to make that movie. Uh, yes. You know, a while back. Um. And now, you, when you move back down to Florida, I, it doesn't seem like you're doing as much acting. No, man. Listen, I, I moved to Florida because I'm an only child, and both my parents got sick, and I had to put them in nursing homes, and they were divorced, so I had to find not one good nursing home. I had to find two good nursing homes, you know? And I, 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 I listen, my parents left everything, sacrificed everything to bring me to this country, and I just didn't have the heart to move out and leave him there. What, you know, what am I going to do? Tell my aunt, call me when they're dead. So I said in Florida, and once I said in Florida, man, my acting career went to nothing. I mean, that was it. Because they shoot a lot of stuff here, or used to anyway. But they but cast out of... Exactly. They cast in New York and L.A. You know? Yeah. Hey, I, I remember, you know, Florida passed a law. I don't know if they still have it or not, where you had to, if you were going to shoot a commercial in Florida... You had to audition Florida actors. And I remember that I got, uh, I was auditioning for a commercial 
and I think it was it was a Joey. I don't remember who was Joey. I don't know who the comedian was that I was telling that I was going to audition for that. He says, Al, I already got the part. Well, what are you talking about? I said, yeah, I got booked for that commercial. What they used to do is they used to audition people down here just to satisfy the law, but they already had casted people in New York. Yeah. I know. So it, it was bullshit. But you actually never stopped working. It's not like you went to Florida and retire. You've been working oh. steady. <clears throat> yeah. And I mean, yeah. really steady. Like, yeah. Well, I got into the cruise ship. Uh, you know, I got into the cruise ship when it was, uh, you know, a, a bad word to say you used to do cruise ships. <laughs> but I had to fit a family, so I had to do it. Now everybody wants to do cruise ships. Oh, well, not now. <laughs> no cruise ship. But for a while, you know, it, what, you know, when the comedy club crunch came, you know, there was no place to work, you know. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of people started wanting to work cruise ships, and then cruise ships started bringing comedy clubs into the cruise ships, and it became a different atmosphere. It was not like uh, you were performing and in, in, you know opening for some guy playing a violin. You were now in a comedy club setting, which it was made it much much easier for us to you know be able to work cruise ships. Let's talk about that a little bit because we both have done our fair share of cruise ships, and you know I. Did them the old style where it's you're opening for a magician, you're opening for a ventriloquist, you're opening for right. a dance group. Um, and it's two separate 30 minute shows, both having to be crystal clean. Right. You know, or one 30 minute show where it's crystal clean and the other one where they put you in a lounge and you can right. say shit, but don't dare say fuck. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. And then the new style of comedy clubs, it's 18 and over and you can, you're free to talk about whatever you want. Just Whatever you want. Of, just don't make fun of the ship. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Don't, don't make fun of the captain. Don't make fun of the ship. Don't make fun of the company. But you can say, you know, language-wise, you can say whatever you want to. It is a comedy club setting. Now, they're yeah. running it as a comedy club inside a, in a cruise ship. Now, for me, what I loved about working on cruise ships was the feeling of working in a big showroom. And now that's kind of gone. Yeah. They put, us, they put her in the lounge in the back. Yeah. So for you, did, did you feel any, is it less fun for you now that it's the comedy club experience? No, no, no. no. I, I like the comedy club setting much better because I like the freedom that I don't have to worry what's going to come out of my mouth, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, and, and you can do crowd work, which I love to do crowd work, uh, which you, you could not do it, you know, in the big room. You know, the big room was a, a performance, you know? Yeah. Uh, now it's like a comedy club atmosphere with the same type of... Uh, feeling and the same type of timing and stuff like that so no i like the comedy club setting much better yeah. all right now now this is also odd because uh, i got a we had a conversation man uh 193 years ago um coming back from some horrible gig or another where uh and, and people should know this al always dressed impeccably on stage there was never a hair out of place <laughs> Everything was ironed and groomed and just like he looked like you. He was about to step, you know, into a magazine. Um, and me, the wrinkled bag of funk I am. You know, a T-shirt, maybe there's a mustard stain over here. And I remember you pulling me aside saying, if you want the better gigs, you need to dress the part. You need yeah. to you need to dress a little better. Uh, I wanted to talk about that because that 
as crazy as it was, when you said that, I was there like, God doesn't know what he's talking about. Of course, because <laughs> when you're 25, you know everything in the planet. Like, yeah. And then, you know, two weeks later, I put on a suit jacket and wind up getting booked in the Poconos for really good money. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about that, a little bit about, you know, your philosophy on how you go on stage and how you present yourself. Well, you know, I, uh, I never made a conscious decision to look a certain way. I just dressed the way I dressed, you know, that's the way I dress all the time. So that's the way I went on stage, you know, uh, I never put any thought into, oh, I'm going to wear this for this gig. The only time I did that was when uh, we were doing the big rooms on the, on the cruise ships. And back then, they wanted you to wear a suit and a tie. That's yeah. the only time that I made a conscious decision to dress a certain way. But I, I never put any thought into it. I just try to look like I did all the time. I try to look clean and presentable. That's all. You know, never put, a, and put any thought into that myself. All right. So it was just me that you would give that advice to. Yeah, exactly. In <laughs> uh, all these years, I thought you were giving me good advice. You were just giving me more shit. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, you know, you know me well enough. If I like you, I will give you shit from the moment I see you till the say goodbye. If I don't like you, I'll be very polite and very nice. <laughs> if I'm nice to you, I don't like you. Yeah, and that is actually more true than anybody could ever possibly. Yeah. If I like you, you're gonna get shit from me all the time. But if I if I don't like you, I'll be the nicest guy in the world. Just stay away from me, you know. Uh, you'll be so polite that people will want to talk to you, and you'll defeat your own purpose. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's true. I was defeating my own purpose. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I want to but talk that, about. I ne I never been able to say. I like you. I've never been able to say I love you. Well, I do to my wife. So my way of showing you that I like you and that you're my friend is by giving you shit. <laughs> it's just, which wasn't, it's kind of a perverted way of thinking, but that's, still, that's who I am. And, and I got to say, it, having spent a, a bunch of time with you, you liked a lot of people, apparently. <laughs> you gave everybody shit. <laughs> yeah, I'm a lot. I I am. I like a lot of people. <laughs> well, what I used especially to especially you, especially oh, you. Oh man, those writing sessions were filled with it. Oh uh, uh, yeah. Especially yeah. when you moved to Bayside, that's when it got really. Because I I would I would take like two hours to get to your house. <laughs> that's when you decided. That's when you said, you know what? I don't think I want to write with this guy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I take two hours to get to your house, and he'd be there. They're like, "Oh, you couldn't have been here on time. You're ten minutes late." Remember the running joke that I had. So, did your where's your dog today? You remember? The, yeah. I always say. So, what are you going to tell me, Jim? That your dog ate the script? The dog ate the script. <laughs> yeah, that, that script took eighty three years to finish. <laughs> the, the Cuban Revolution was actually shorter than our movie about the Cuban Revolution. <laughs> yeah. Well, it took it took over a year. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a good script. You, you know, it's still something that I shot on occasion. You yeah, know? I, I think I think it is. Uh, you know, that that was my that was my uh, when I started writing the book. That was the outline that I used. Uh, you know, when you write a script, you know, uh, a lot of the stuff you just give directions, and the director put in his idea of what it's supposed to look yeah. like. When you write a book, you have to write everything. You know, the guy yeah. sit down in a chair. He got up. The guy pick up a, a cigarette, put it in his mouth. You have to describe everything. 
So mm-hmm. you, it, it's, and the way I, I wrote the book, because I've never taken a writing lesson in my life, you know? I mean, I really don't. The way I did it was I will see in my head the scene that I'm trying to write, and I will describe it as I see in it in my head. That's the way I wrote, you know? And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. I spent sometimes seven, eight hours a day writing, just writing and writing and writing and writing. Then go back and start cleaning it up, you know? That's what you have to do. Get the initial ideas down and shape yeah, them. Just, yeah, exactly. I just, I will not stop. I will just keep writing and writing and writing. And it, it just, uh, I, I amazed myself, at, you know, how I was able to write uh, dialogue and was able to write description of the scene, you know? Uh, and then you know Dave Kelly, right? Yeah, absolutely. You remember the guy who was known yeah. for having that uh, gray patch in his hair? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I used to do, because, you know, my grammar is awful and my 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 uh, spelling is awful, uh, I will write, write, and I will send him, I will email him everything, and then he will clean it up for me. And then I will say, no, 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 no. I mean, that might be the way people, that might be the correct way of saying it, but that's not the way people talk. You know, I'd rather have it grammatically incorrect, but gets the, the, the idea better than having it grammatically correct and not sound like the, that's the way the guy should sound. Yeah. So you say this was a long and difficult process for you. Yes, it, Which it was. I, I got I to admit, somehow that makes me a little bit happy because this is the person <laughs> that made me go into the Cuban embassy. <laughs> As a Cuban consulate to research Camilo Cienfuegos, who I'd never heard of. And they get, remember, then I'm leaving and I'm getting stopped by the U.S. Secret Service people. All because he wanted a, a little piece about Camilo in the movie. So, oh, my God. I remember that. I remember getting stopped by the, by, by the U.S. government. Why are you walking into this place? You yeah. Know? And I'm there like, research, write the movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, no, I'm no. on some government watch list for the past 30 years. because remember us, I remember us spending hours at the New York Library. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I, I, we watched so much microfish. Do they still use microfish? No, no more. It's no. gone. Well, I remember watching so much microfish that I actually got dizzy and threw up. Do you remember the... Um, the pro Castro Cuban bookstore on 23rd street. Yes. I we had to go once with you. I went yeah. there once with you. Yeah. I remember yeah. that. And, and yeah. after that, I was like, you gotta go there alone. I can't come back there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember you go there and trying to make him believe that you're going to write a pro Castro book. <laughs> he wasn't going to give me the books if I didn't. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, All right. God. So here's a valuable lesson to people that want to write. Learn how to lie in order to get what you want from people. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he you did tell not the trust truth, you. Never get he didn't trust you at all. He, he looked it out like, Ugh. well, he knew I was Cuban and yeah. Cuban in the United States. What are the chances of Cuban in the United States being pro Castro? Is uh, what? One in a 10 million, you know? Yep. Yeah. No, we, so we went he, all yeah. over to research that. We went to Bergenfield, New Jersey to interview the guy who was the mayor of one of the towns, if you remember. We also, uh, here, you came down to Florida yeah. working together at Comic Street. We interviewed, uh, um, uh, uh, what, what's his name? The guy that was very good friends with Camilo. Uh, yeah, I know who you're uh, talking about. God, I can't remember his name right now. Will you believe that? And then yeah. we interviewed uh, 
Eloy Gutierrez Menoyo. Yeah. We went to his house. Yeah, we And did. I said, uh, <laughs> I remember I said something about your daughter. And he says, that's my wife. No. Oh. Remember that? Yeah. Oh, God. He had, a, he had a wife that was 30 years younger than him. And I thought it was his daughter, you know? That, yeah. And that's before we even asked him a question. I'm always yeah. And, and that's now, why you know? for, for the rest of that entire interview, I'm there like, only we need to translate into Spanish, Al. <laughs> Stay quiet. We need to yeah, translate just shut Spanish. up. Just shut up. Yeah, just sit here and look pretty. You look better in the suit. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I, I want to talk uh, about, and this is fun for me because this is nothing better than spending time with old friends, but I, I want to talk about your performance because that's where I think that young comics can learn a lot from you. Okay. Um, I used to sit and watch you perform because it was like a fucking clinic. And I want to talk about the one thing that I think you do better than almost any comic I've ever seen. And that's eye contact. You can make the entire room think you're looking just at them. Mm. And, and how much do you work on your performance? How much is it of it is conscious and how much of it is just, this is just what I do. Jim, I have to be conscious. It's just what I do. I, I never, you see, I, I had a, I had a sales background, mm-hmm. you know, before I got into comedy, I did a lot of sales and I made a lot of money salesman. And that's what you do when you're a salesman, you look at the person, you look him in the eye and you, 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 you know, you, you make that, that, that connection because you're trying to sell them something. And comedy is the same thing. You're trying to sell yourself. You're trying to sell your comedy. And, and I, when I looked at the audience, I looked at everybody's in the eye, you know, and I, I try to make that connection with them. But it was not a conscious decision like I'm going to do this. That just it just came natural because of all the years that I spent doing that as a salesman. It just translated into my act on stage. Now, you're also incredibly high energy on on stage now without bouncing off the walls. You're not one of these people that's pulling props out and screaming and yelling but you, you, your act has a vigor to it that's constant. You never lay off the throttle while you're up there. Well, because I'm a very intense, <laughs> intense person. Ask my, ask my wife, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm burning inside all the time. I mean, I'm going at 50,000 miles an hour inside of me, you know. I mean, when I was a kid, I had ADDH. I mean, I used to bounce off the walls because I was so intense. You know, as I grew up, I get older i learn how to you know take that that hyperness and 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 put it into a more you know acceptable uh you know how should i say uh performance you know uh, uh not, not only on stage but in life you know i try i try but you still feel that people tell me all the time you're a very intense person and that comes across on stage you know and mm-hmm. i guess that's the high energy that comes out of me without having to, you know, jump around and, and, and do all that stuff. It's just like you can feel the intensity coming out of me because I'm so hyper. Now, now I also want to talk to you about this. You have a little bit of an accent, which is thicker when you perform. Everybody tells me that. And I swear to you, by God, I do not do it on purpose. I really don't. And people tell me all the time. I mean, I've, I've talked to people when I get off the stage, go, what happened to your accent? And I'm looking at it. I don't know what you're talking about. I give, I swear to you, I do not put it on. And people do not believe me. They think I go there and try to put on the Cuban accent. <laughs> I don't. It just comes out. Maybe because I'm, I'm a little bit, you know, uh, 
you know, really excitable. And when you get excited, th yeah. that my action comes out more, I guess. I don't know. All but right. it's not on purpose. All right. So let's uh, let's talk about performing. You know, because you love performing. You you're, you adore being on stage. There, yes, there's, I do. there's no doubt about that. When you watch, it's clear when you watch somebody who loves being up there. And we've all yes. seen those comics who really, really don't want to be there anymore. Well, they're, they're comics that are very good writers, but they're not performers. And, and when they go on stage, you, you can see and uh, you can hear how good their jokes are, but they're not doing any, you know, uh, they're not doing any justice to their jokes because they're not performer. I'd be more of a performer than I'm a writer. You know, I mean, uh, I, I, I think that I'm, I'm able to take a joke that is not as good and make it better by their performance rather than the other way around, you know? Yeah. I don't think I'm a very good stand-up comedian writer. I think that I'm a good stand-up comedian performer, and I think that my performance makes my joke better than what it is in itself, you know? Well, well I agree with you on that statement is you are a much better performer than you are a writer. That's your strong suit. That's your natural talent. You right. know, and we all have a natural talent. You're not a bad writer by any means in terms of a stand-up. You do what stand-up should do, and that's write for their character, write for, for who they are. And, right. and I think it's that your vigorous pursuit of I only am going to write jokes that I find funny right. is what makes you the good writer. You know, if you were doing the same thing, but and, and we've all seen it. I, I mean, uh, you know, uh, the late Larry Ragland, who just wrote enough to, to perform and never added another word to it. You could tell the people that don't want to be writers, but you're constantly writing. You're constantly changing and evolving your stuff. It'd be interesting for me now because what, what I remember the last time I saw you live, I remember you talking about, you know, your kid and having your daughter and wife in the house at the same time and how it was driving you crazy, you know, and, and I'd love to see what it's become. Cause I know you're not talking about that anymore as no. opposed to some comics who they wrote their act in 1974 and what they're performing right now is what they wrote in 1974. Yeah. I, I have to admit, I have to admit that I still have jokes that are very old because I, I love them and the audience loves it. Yeah. And I, and you know, I've never written, topical material. I've never written uh, political material. I've never written something that is uh, that has a, a time limit. Uh, so there are jokes that I can do because, you know, one of the themes on my act is stupid things that people do. And, and those stupid things that people are going to keep doing it till the end of time. So I have cer certain jokes that will, will always be in my act. Uh, only if I get tired of them and I don't want to do them anymore. Like I, that happens sometimes. Yeah. But but the joke itself is still holds up because it, there's not a time limit to the joke. Yep. Let's, um, let's talk a little bit about how comedy's changed over the years. Cause it's definitely changed for us. You know, uh, yeah. you, you know, clubs are less prevalent than they've ever been. You know, the, the gigs generally tend to be really high money or no money. There, there's not that, there's not that living wage section that was around in the eighties and nineties. You know, so what's what's required for you as an artist in order to stay viable and in order to keep earning in this in this day and age? Well, uh, you know, uh, I have switched 90 percent of my uh, performance on cruise ships 
I have developed a great relationship with Carnival Cruise Line, and they give me more work than I can possibly handle, you know, uh, which is good and bad uh, because uh, it's now with the comedy club atmosphere is more you be more creative. You can you can write, you know, bring jokes on stage, but you can't do the same thing as a comedy club because believe me, if if you start trying out new stuff and it doesn't work and you can lose the audience like that, you know, cruise ships, they don't, you know, remember they're not there because they made a concerted effort to go see comedy. They go there because it's the eight o'clock show, you know, like when people, when people go to a comedy club, you know, from the moment they start getting dressed at their home to the point, to the, to the point that they get to the club, they have made it even on a subconscious level, a concerted effort to go see comedy. So they're already in that frame of mind that they want to laugh and they want to enjoy comedy. So they have almost on a subliminal level have made the commitment to laugh. When you are performing because it's the eight o'clock show, people just show up because that's what it's there to do. They have not made a concerted effort to laugh. So it becomes a harder audience and you can lose them very quickly. As a matter of fact, uh, a lot of good comedians don't work on comedy on cruise ships because they take their slow burners. They, you know, it takes a little time for the comedy to to work or for the audience to get into their head. That doesn't work on cruise ships, man. You got to get them boom from the moment you open your mouth. Boom, you have to get them from the first joke. So you don't have as much leeway uh, to come up with material or try out new stuff. So I also continue to do clubs for that purpose. Uh, what I seen, what I, and I don't know if it's that much anymore, but there was a period of there where the comedy became, the premise became more important than the punchline. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think, I think TV had a lot to do with that because TV, you know, gobbles up premises so fast, you know, that, you know, uh, if you do a joke about this, you know, you can, in about a month or so, that, that becomes passe on TV. So, so the comedians that, 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 that the, um, the TV shows wanted were people that had more innovative, more fresh premises, but not necessarily a great punchline. And I saw a lot of comics doing that, uh, doing a lot of premises that, that were interesting and amusing, but there was not a big payoff. When, when you and I started doing comedy, the punchline was the most important thing, is what do you have yeah. to do to get to the punchline, you know? The premise was the way to get there, uh, where it became for a while where the premise was the most important part, and the punchline became almost secondary. I, yeah. I, I didn't like that. What I really loved about watching you work was you would take one premise, uh, you know, the the first guy who discovered X and then roll off a lot of punchlines with it. Well, you know, I, you know, I, I, I correlate that to the way I buy clothes. If I pair, if I find a pair of pants, I buy them in every color. (laughs) So when I find, when I find something that works, I I try to replicate it differently but in the same premise you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. like the first guy that ate an egg the first guy that drank milk the first guy that that ate a mushrooms so it's basically 
the same idea with different premises, but it's basically in the same vein. And I do that a lot, like stupid things that people do. I have like 20 jokes about stupid things that people do. Uh, things that piss people off. I have 20, 20 jokes about things that piss people off. And uh, that's, that's the way I do it. Because again, because I'm not a great comedy writer, when I find something that works, I try to replicate it over and over again in a different way, you know, make it a different joke, but basically it's the same premise. So I've been talking to an, an awful lot of performers that are around our age who've been doing this for a lot of years. And there's two camps where, you know, some of them are saying they're, and I feel this way, I'm a better performer now than I've ever been just because of the experience and, and the passion. And then there are some that are they're like, no, I'm tired. I was a lot better when I was 25. Do you feel that you're getting better? Uh, not necessarily better. Uh, I feel more experienced. Uh, I, I feel that uh, there's no situation that I cannot handle because I've been put in every situation before. Uh, there's nothing that a heckler can say to me that I have not heard before. So I, ha I have an automatic comeback to that because I've already experienced it. But I've, I've heard that from some comedians. And when I hear that, I said, man, you know, if you feel that way, just get out of the business, you know. I mean, yeah. if, if going on stage have become a chore, if going on stage have become work, then you don't need to do this anymore because this is not work. You know, yeah. this, is, this is our passion. And if you don't have the passion anymore then you might as well just go do something else. Yeah, and it does amaze me how some people stay well past when the passions end, you know, and it has an end for you and you're, you're just doing so much, but right now you're, we're, when we're filming this, because I don't know when this is airing, uh, we're still in quarantine. Florida was Wait. getting out and now you're back in it again. Um, yeah. So you, you would tell me beforehand, you, there were dates on the books that went away again. You know, yeah. um, but I want to talk. Not because, only went away, they, they, they actually, the club actually closed back again. Wow. They just yeah. closed. They just told me they, they didn't cancel it because they didn't have enough reservations. They canceled it because, you know, the conditions are not, you know, good to have crowds anymore. Yeah. So one of the hardest hit areas is cruise ships, which is also oh. your bread and butter, you know. Yeah. Uh, are you going to feel comfortable performing cruise ships again when they open them back up? Jim, I, I'm, I'm scared. I'm, <laughs> I'm scared. I'm going to forget my act. I, I hear that a lot on <laughs> Facebook from a lot of comics and said, God, I don't even know if I'm going to remember my act. What I do have is I, ha I have uh, DVDs of my act and I watch them, you know, yeah. just to keep it fresh in my head. You know, I, I, I keep, I keep watching them from time to time. Although I hate watching myself. Do you hate watching yourself? Oh, I hate watching myself. Oh, you have to, God, I but I, I, yeah. Can yeah, I also I just say it. that was the most comic answer ever to that question? Because I just asked you <laughs> if you were afraid of, of going back to cruise ships because of COVID, and you're there like, no, I'm afraid I forgot my act. <laughs> that is <laughs> exactly. the most stand-up comic answer I have ever heard. He's like, well, I don't care if I die. I don't want to die. <laughs> right. I don't care if I physically die. I don't want to die. Uh, theoretically on stage, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, natural death is less frightening to me than dying on stage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah. It's, it's actually funny because that is, it, that's actually how we think. That's actually how, you know, I can't remember how many times I sat in a car with you and all the way to 
wooden nickel or to Freddy's or to whatever lousy little club we were doing, you know, Jesse's too in Real, New Jersey. We would <laughs> bitch about how awful the gig was. And then, you know, we would go there and we would light up the second we got there. That's right. That's what comics do. Yeah, it, man. Listen, if you really like what you do, if you really like what you do, that the gig might be crap, but your performance is what you honor and what you have respect for, and you go off stage. I never, I don't care how bad the gig was, only, only once, and I'll tell you the story. I don't care how bad the gig was. I always gave respect to my act. I did my act. I did my act. You know, I don't care if, if they were going to heckle me. I don't care if they didn't like it or they're paying attention. I gave respect to my act and to my performance. All right. So what's the one gig where you said you didn't? Was uh, a, a Gary Grant hit, a gig. Mm -hmm. uh, I went on stage. The opening act, they're booing them. They're throwing shit at the guy. You know, he gets off the stage. The middle act goes there. They're heckling him. They're calling him names, you know. I said, no, I am not going to honor these people with my performance. I am not going to do that. So on my way to stage, I pick up a menu and I got on stage and I said, you know, I, 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 I was in the back room and I saw how disrespectful and how you were to the other comedians where they're trying to do their act. You know what? I'm not going to do my act for you people because you don't deserve it. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read the fucking menu to you. So I sat there and I started in the menu to them. It was, you know, line by line by line by line. And you go, fuck it. If you're going to heckle me, if you're going to have no respect for what I do, I'm not going to have any respect for you. And actually, I had a guy, listen to this. The guy says, get off the stage. And I go, pay me. He says, I'll give you $25. Not enough. I'll give you $50. Not enough. How about if I give you $75? Go, let me see it. So he gave me the $75. I put it in my pocket and I walked out of the room. <laughs> Probably Gary big, not the Gary Grant kick. Yeah, and I got in my car and drove <laughs> off. And Gary called me the next day. What did you do? You left. And he go, I, by the way, thank God they have paid us ahead of time, which is very rare. Yeah. You know, they usually, yeah, because I think the owner had to leave and he was the one that paid us. So he paid us ahead of time. So I had my, my, my gig money in my pocket, and the guy gave me $75. I walked out the door, got in my car, and drove off. And Gary called me the next day, what do you do? I said, fuck it, man. I'm not going to honor this shit. These people were disgusting. They were just throwing shit on stage. You think I'm going to go there and perform for them? I read in the menu. They didn't like it. Fuck them. You know? Don't book me again. As a matter of fact, don't book me there again because I'm not doing it. Yeah. There's – and let's – Let's talk about that because we've all walked into gigs where we've been promised that they're great gigs and we get there and, and they're just not. Uh, do, you remember, do you remember Ken Grayson? Yes. Uh, Ken Grayson booked me. Uh, I, was doing, I was doing Penny Arcade in Clark, New Jersey. And he goes, do you want to make an extra $500 by doing an afternoon in Clark? And I went, yeah. He goes, there's a, a whole bunch of women in their 40s who are widows that rented out the senior center and they want to have a show. He goes, you're single, because I wasn't at the time. He goes, you're single, go perform to them. Maybe you hook up with a 40-year-old widow. <laughs> and I get there, and it's a whole bunch of women who have been widows for 40 years or more. <laughs> so, like, the youngest age was, like, 90. 
and, and that was the gig. We've all been there at those gigs that are just soul crushing when you find out how much you were lied to. But how'd you learn? Yeah. How'd you learn how to deal with that? Well, again, you know, again, I, I looked at it as I'm going to do my job. This is my performance. Uh, I'm here to perform. Uh, I'm going to, you know, uh, what's his name? Uh, DiMaggio, they told him once, uh, I don't know what, what they, they, the other guy said, but he says, uh, I go there and give it my best because there might be one guy that I've never seen me uh, play before. And I, I went there with the idea that I'm going to do my job. I'm going to give my performance. And uh, if it's a bad gig, it's a bad gig, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to do my job. That, that, that my job is to go there and perform, and uh, I'm going to give them the respect that hopefully they deserve. And if they don't, well, you know, that's, that's their problem, you know. Yeah. Uh, a couple of quick things before we wrap up. Number one, and we touched on this a little bit with. God, with we'd, be, we'd, be, we'd be at this an hour? Just about. Oh God <laughs> damn. We got to do this again, man. This is fun. This is yeah, fun. This is, you know, it, it, it's also, we just haven't seen each other in a long time. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. But, but ne next time I want it to be like a Cafe Versailles down in, uh, down in Miami so that we could actually get some Cuban food. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's, I still love Cuban food. You, you like Cuban food, right? Oh, you were the first that turned me on to Ropa Vieja. Oh, Ropa Vieja, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, oh, yeah, that's unbelievable. And vaca so, frita, you have to try that. Oh, yeah, I love vaca frita too. You know, <laughs> fried cow. Look at me, I like food. <laughs> it's clear. Uh, <laughs> comics are, are very solitary. We wind up doing this by ourselves, but there's also, you know, like you and I, camaraderie. You know, you get close friends over the time. But there's also, for me at least, when I started, a whole lot of comics that were a lot more veteran than me, reaching back and teaching me things that I didn't know. I remember Barry Berry from the comic strip teaching me how to construct a joke. Or I remember uh, Dennis Wolfberg when he came off stage talking to me about how I had to put some nuances in my performance. Who are some of the guys when you started that reached back and helped you a lot? Well, uh, Lonnie Shore, uh, who was, uh, you know, was a professional comic. It was another, you know, he was a guy that had done everything that, you know, uh, was one of them. Uh, I when I went to the comedy uh, comedy store in L.A., uh, you know Blake Clark, uh, mm -hmm. you know uh, you know Blake, right? Oh yeah. Uh, 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 um, um, Gary Shandling, um, um, in in a way also, uh, um, what's his name? Uh, uh, Dice Clay, which mm -hmm. I knew him before he was Dice Clay, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was not so much that they try to teach me anything, is that we kind of, by talking and, and, and sharing experiences, I, I learned a lot from them. Uh, uh, I watching, you know, I mean, the comedy store was like, guy, going to college, man, you know, watching some of the best comics in the United States going on stage on a regular basis, and they were your buddies, you know, I mean, you were, you were talking to them and, and having a beer with them, and the next thing, they go on stage, and and the next thing you know, they're on Carson, you know. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the comedy store, not so much individuals, but the, the, the place was like, uh, I grew by leaps and bounds, man. When I went to L.A., uh, having only doing comedy for one year and doing the Murph Griffin show and having all these expectations that people had on me because I already done 
TV. Uh, I, 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 I had to learn very fast because I didn't have that much material. And, um, and it, was, it, it was watching these people, with, you know, was an inspiration for me watching all these great comics. And, uh, and I grew by leaps and bounds uh, at the comedy store. Comedy store was a great experience for me. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> last question. The, and I ask everyone this. You've been doing this for 1,034 years. What do you wish you knew then that you learned during your journey? Uh, good question. Um, well, things happened to me so fast that, like I told you, I was like, I, I didn't, you know, I, I, I was, I didn't know enough not, not to know what, what I didn't know. Uh, I, I wish I would have um, be more. I, I wish I would have stayed in LA more. Uh, I wish I would have concentrate on going out for parts more. Uh, because I wanted to be an actor in addition to being a stand-up comedian. Uh, just uh, pick and choosing. I, I, it was good in a way, and bad in another way, the fact that I took any, any job that came my way. But by taking the job that came my way, I also was not around to maybe get a better gig or have a better opportunity because I was engaged doing something else. So maybe pick and choose a little more uh, of what I'm gonna do. Uh, although I still needed to go on stage as much as possible, but I took anything and everything. And uh, I, I missed not being around for things that were more important than the gig I was doing myself at the time. All right. So Al, this has been a wonderful hour that we spent together. And I loved it, man. And we could do like another 14 of these hours. <laughs> it, yes. feels, it feels like yeah. old times. We get together to do one thing. And we do nothing but reminisce for the entire time. I know. Are you coming to Florida anytime? Are you well, hopefully to... when COVID ends. But okay. let me wrap up the show and then stay on the line and you and I will chat a little bit more. That the okay. audience is going to be privy to. This is, Al Romero has been our guest. And, and uh, definitely do not confuse uh, Al Romero with J.J. Ramirez. They're two different people. <laughs> <laughs> or Al Romas. <laughs> or Al Romas. Or uh, Angel Salazar. That's yeah. that's the big one. Uh, we, uh, I will be back in just a second to wrap it up. And goodbye, everybody. To me, the most fun part of this is that even though we haven't been in the same room in over 20 years, you pick up again. You know, just like you never left. It, it's amazing how strong the bonds are between comedians, how much we remain family after all this time. And Al certainly has a great journey. I can't wait till I see him again. Uh, in the interim, you should go to our website, comedylegacy.com, uh, comedy and uh, go and see what we have. Check out the previous episodes. Uh, it'll tell you where you can download the podcast. Um, catch up on whomever you want, or even drop us a line. We would love to hear from you. So on behalf of everybody uh, here at the Comedy Legacy Series, from uh, the fine folks at New Media Comedy Worldwide, to our guest, Al Romero, I'm Jim Andrinos. Thanks for watching, guys. Bye-bye.
This has been a new media comedy worldwide production.